I want to start in Acts chapter 21. And while you're turning there, I'll say a couple things, and we'll get to there in a second. And then we'll also be, if you, we're going to be flipping over to Acts 15. Um, but it's going to take a few minutes, okay? It's going to take a few minutes. And um, we want to be a church that follows Scripture carefully and also thinks with God's wisdom in putting Scripture together. Okay? And both are very, very, very important. Deuteronomy 5, after recounting the Ten Commandments in verse 32, God says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall be careful. Constantly the Lord says that to us. Constantly. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right and or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Constantly, you shall be careful, you shall be careful, you shall be careful. And um, today's message really is an effort for our church to be careful about being the church that God has commanded us to be. Okay. So we're in this series on the church, and the church isn't just a place where we just get to willy-nilly kind of just decide whatever it is for ourselves and live according to all of our own opinions and all of our own judgments and all of what we particularly approve of. That's not what the church is. Scripture says so much about the nature of the church that we must take carefully. And it all matters. It all matters for how we live as a church. If we're not serious or if we forget God in what He says about His church, what do we end up with? Well, the church isn't a business where we just syncretize business practices with what God says the church is. Not saying that actually there's not some real help from those who run businesses or are in business, but the church isn't a business where we just syncretize business practice. What God said, the church isn't a social club just for weekly company and well-doing. The church isn't for a weekly emotional experience for some sense of therapeutic purpose. The church isn't where you go once you have kids hoping it helps them and not you. The church isn't just a human community of a flurry of activity. The church is a spiritual and divine institution from God Himself for His people. And His people are to carefully keep all of His commands and think carefully about His wisdom about being His church. Now, to quickly review where we were at last week, we covered um, the nature of the church in three ways the term church is used in Scripture. I told you we would cover the other two uh, this week, and we will. We'll cover the last one in about seven seconds. But what happens when you start to do this, and it's very important that you understand this because it will guard you from a lot of errors, is doctrine and understanding in Scripture, it's all very intertwined. You know? You can't, just, you can't just pull one particular doctrine out and examine it in its own right without understanding its intertwined connectedness. You can study it and understand it, but you cannot do that and understand it properly, put it in proper perspective, give it proper emphasis, apart from understanding all of its other connectedness, you know? Unlike the book, <clears throat> Gentle and Lowly. And so, the invisible church. I will build my church. Well, we're going to run into some interconnectedness, and that's where we're going to kind of spend the time. That was my point. The invisible church. Jesus said, I will build my church. All of those who are born again, Matthew 16, 18. Then there's the visible church. 
everything, all the physical stuff in the life of the church that has people and apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors and elders and, you know, the body of Christ and their gifts and the ordinances, all of the things that make up the visible church. And there's, and the visible church is the church gathering globally, professing to know Christ. The local church then is, you know, to the church in her house. Local body of gathering believers. Bloomington Bible Church is a local church. So, now, there's two more ways the church is used in Scripture. Um, I will say the second one is the least clear to me. So I'll just put that forth for now that I'm going to cover today. But here is where it gets a little bit more challenging. And I want to invite you into a process of my growing understanding. Okay, It's kind of what this is. It's kind of the history of my pastoral ministry here. Um, The way this has gone is let's just go on a journey together to get to what's true. You know? And I want us as a church to keep fighting to get to what's true and shedding all that's untrue, build on human wisdom and human understanding and get to what's true, okay? In other words, I did not have mastery of all truth when I started this church and still do not, you know? Still do not. But we need to learn and we need to grow. So this is a process of my growing understanding and and our pastors and our elders. I also, though, don't want to overstate where we're actually at in thinking through some of these things at this point. I want to actually just give you, here's the honest truth about where we're at in our understanding at this point in thinking about Jesus' church. So where I don't know, I hope to tell you I don't know yet, um, where I... I'm more certain, you will probably know that I'm more certain. (laughs) You can tell when I'm pretty certain about something, can't you? Where I don't think all Christians need to necessarily think the same, or function the same, actually. Um, I will say that hopefully, or at least that will come across. But the goal this morning is to crack the door to get you thinking about things that many of you, I believe, have been taught wrongly about this. And I want you to see more clarity in Scripture and in God's wisdom than the majority of you in your history of, in Christianity have been taught. And so I'm going to, what I want to do is, I want you to hang with me for this. And I want you to, I want to invite us to keep talking and dialoguing through these things in the life of our church. You know, this isn't like one-and-done sermon shepherding. It's just not what this is. This is, I'm shepherding in every sermon, but there's a process of growth that happens in the life of the church through many means of relationship and truth that we need to keep pursuing. And so, um, can I get you this, before I say what I'm about to say, can I just get you to hang with me? Can I get that? get like a nod. Just hang with me for a minute. Okay. Before you crucify me and throw tomatoes at me, just hang with me for a minute, okay? So I'm going to make a doctrinal statement. Then I'm going to make an argument for a long time. And so it's just going to take a bit, okay? Here's the doctrinal statement. I deny that the autonomy of the local church is a biblical doctrine. I deny that the autonomy of the local church is a biblical doctrine. So, before you gasp, or after you gasp, I want you to hear what I have to say about it, okay? I think you would all agree that the majority of you have pursued in your hearts of truth a greater depth of understanding about many things since being in the life of our church. And I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt to make an argument, okay? And my hope is 
that you give me a chance and that there actually is something here that will be much more clear to you than maybe it's ever been before, or at least you're willing to explore it more because there's some thoughts that you haven't had about it before, okay? So what is the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church? The doctrine of the autonomy of the local church is that every church is independent from all other churches and authorities, and that it has no other authority or rule over it. And here's the key phrase. This is, frankly, this is what Baptists are bad at. I'll probably say more about that in a second. This is what Baptists are bad at. The doctrine of the autonomy of the local church is that every church is independent from all other churches and authorities and that it has no other authority or rule of it of any kind at all or for any reason whatsoever. That's a very important phrase. Other than Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Now, autonomy... Is, means self-rule, you know, um, means self-rule. Autonomy of the local church means the self-rule of the local church. So we're talking about how a church is governed, where it's a, what is its authority for what it does. And so most modern traditional Baptists have held this doctrine, the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church, as a distinctive of being a Baptist. Well, of course, a good Baptist would say, it's not so much about a Baptist distinctive as it's a biblical distinctive, you know. And I'm okay with that. You know, I have no problem with those who are zealous for Scripture. So this is what I was taught in the first church that I belonged to. This is what I held to in Scripture for many, many, many years. But 15 years down the road, you know, 15 years down the road with some experience under my belt, and relationships like with our dear Bob and our dialogue about this very doctrine especially and furthering my understanding of how Scripture actually works these things out in the life of the church, I just can no longer hold that the autonomy of the local church is a biblical doctrine, at least in the sense that it's completely independent in every way. This is written from where I learned this very specifically in summarizing the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church. Quote, the local church is an independent body accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. All human authority for governing the local church resides within the local church itself. Thus, the church is autonomous or self-governing. No religious hierarchy outside the local church may dictate a church's beliefs or practices. Autonomy does not mean isolation. A Baptist church may fellowship with other churches around mutual interests and in, in, in an associational tie, but a Baptist church cannot be a member of any other body. I was taught this. I believed it for many years. I know many of you were taught this and have believed it for many years. Our church has functioned like this from the very beginning. This is how we function as a church. And I can no longer look at the scriptures carefully or with wisdom in putting them together and see that this is what the scriptures are teaching. Now, the main biblical argument for the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church is this. This is it. Jesus is head over the church. Jesus is head over every local church. Right? I've taught you, you know, we taught, taught this just a couple weeks ago, right? Jesus is head over every local church. Here's the argument. Therefore, there can be no outside influence that has any bearing of authority whatsoever for any reason at all because Jesus is head of every local church. So if there was any kind of, uh, let's just use the word help. <laughs> you, know, you ever use the word authority and help in the same sentence? Let's use the word help. No help. All right. That's the argument. Jesus is head over every local church. Therefore, there can be no authority of any kind for any reason whatsoever. Just stick with me on that phrase for a bit. 
in between Jesus and the local church. And if there was anything at all, that thing would be the head of the church and Jesus wouldn't be. That's the argument. I, and I'm not, I, I listened to many guys tell you that, say this and summarize this doctrine this week. I'm, and I'm not exaggerating that at all. I'm stating this is the doctrine. This is the defense of the doctrine. Okay? Now, think with me. That used to sound really good to me. It used to go down nice, and I used to think, okay, I can see that in Scripture in, in many ways. You know, um, I mean, who wants a Pope? <laughs> you know? We have elders and deacons and the whole church. Who needs a Christian version of Rome? You know, that's, I'm, I'm not saying that's what we're th- I'm telling you is the positive direction. I'm just telling you that's the way we think about this, right? Who needs a Rome? But you realize that this argument that is if Jesus is the head over the church, there could be no intermediary authority of any kind for any reason whatsoever. Or Jesus wouldn't be the head of the church. These authorities would be the head of the church. You realize this is how every Christian thinks about authority. Today. This is how every Christian today thinks about authority. Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. If there is any any intermediary of authority between Jesus, who's my Lord, and me, I'm not submitting to Jesus, my Lord. I'm submitting to them as Lord. That's how every Christian thinks today. It's the same argument that's used for the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church. We could just call it the doctrine of the autonomy of the Christian. And of course, everyone here would think that's completely bonkers. You would say, when it comes to the nature of being a Christian, you submit to the church. You submit to the church's pastors and elders, and you submit to the church. And submitting to human ruling authorities over you, it's helpful for you. And... Submitting to human ruling authorities is submission to your Lord. Right? Submitting to human ruling authorities that God has given is submitting to your Lord because here's what we've entirely lost and what confuses all of this. We think that there can't be anything between me and Jesus. But we're failing to understand that Jesus rules through rulers. Jesus rules through human rulers. Jesus doesn't rule over here and then just kind of give pastors and elders for for what? I For what? He rules through them. We've lost that entirely. We've lost that Jesus actually rules through governing authorities in his providence in the world. We've lost that Jesus actually carries out his headness over the church through under-shepherds. Real people that we must submit to. So the point is, the argument that if there's authority, if there's an intermediary authority over a church of any kind for any reason whatsoever, that somehow that denies Jesus' authority over the church is just not true. It's a misnomer. It's a misunderstanding of how Jesus' authority works in the world. It's a, I don't know, it's wrong. (laughs) It's wrong. 
cringe. That's what I wrote down in my notes. So the argument is just cringe. Now, I used to not think it was cringe, but when I listened to it this week, I thought, this is cringe. So what is the danger of the autonomy of the local church? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered what is the danger of the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever read in the scriptures it's not good for man to be alone? Well, think about it as a church. It's not good for churches to be alone. That's why we're heartened with relationships that we have with like Matt Shockney and coming to pray with me on Wednesday mornings in my family room and preaching to our church. And it encourages their whole congregation that they're not alone. It's not good for man to be alone. But we're only, we're just so individualistic, we won't think corporately as a church and apply similar thinking and use God's wisdom to think, well, maybe it's not good for churches to be alone. So what's the danger of the autonomy of the local church? Well, it's not good for pastors to be alone. It's not good for groups of elders to be alone. It's just not good to be alone, you know. Now, I might even say that being alone, and I do not believe at this point that I am saying this with hyperbole, and I am not exaggerating this. So just come with me here, okay? I might even say that being alone and never having any reason at all of any kind to have some important authority over us means we will die. Alone, we will die. No, let me digress. And then I'll get back on the, the train here. Don't assume what I haven't taught you yet. <laughs> Don't assume a positive direction that you think I would want to take this based on what I've said so far. Because you're probably going to be wrong. Okay? Because you'll assume what for any reason of any kind whatsoever means. And I don't want you to assume that. Here's why I don't want you to assume it. Because it's not all entirely clear to me. (laughs) So if you assume it, you're going to be wrong. (laughs) Because you're going to come to me, I'm going to say, no, no, that's just not entirely clear to me yet. Okay. I'm not advocating. What I'm not advocating for, so don't assume this, I'm not advocating for a purely top-down hierarchy at all. You know, something like in the Episcopal Church, a purely top-down hierarchy. Although, I'm going to insult Baptists here. I'm going to insult Baptist pride. Although, I don't think it is as unreasonable to conclude such things from Scripture as Baptists like think it is. I'm not a church governance snob. You shouldn't be a church governance snob. It's not all perfectly laid out so that, you know, Christians couldn't possibly disagree on this and it'd be okay. All right? What we're trying to do is come up with our best understanding of Scripture and God's wisdom. I'm not a church governance snob, and I don't think you should be either. But Baptists tend to be purists about everything tend to be purists about everything. And they have the purest, you know, they drew the purest line in the sand. They drew the, they're the, have the purest position on the autonomy of the local church. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance. This is why Baptists have a reputation. It's not a stereotype. <laughs> Baptists tend to be purists about everything and it lacks proper nuance sometimes. It lacks proper nuance sometimes. And that is the other thing about Baptists. They tend to not be able to think in nuanced ways. Everything is a hard line in the sand at all times. You know? And so lines are always drawn, and whatever that line is, that line is the mark of godliness. 
Now, you know, I'm not afraid to draw lines in the sand. That's not the issue. Right? You know, do I need to prove to you again that I'm not afraid to draw lines in the sand? No, I don't. I know you don't think that. But it's why so many of the churches are so clean and so rigid and outwardly dignified because they're purists. So they had to run from Roman Catholicism further than anyone else. This is what they will tell you. Both in regards to baptism and in regards to the autonomy of the local church. Historically, Baptists will tell you that no one reformed as far as they did. That's what I mean by Baptists being purists. And having a bit of pride. No one has reformed as far from Rome as we have. That's, what they, I mean, that's actually what the argument, okay? This is what they say. I'm mocking it because it's proud, but that is what they say. So, historically, they would say they reformed more than anyone else in regards to things like the independence of the local church, which is as different as you can be from Rome's top-down hierarchy, right? So, hard to find a Baptist that isn't the godliest person in every room in which he or she may enter. Now, that was a pastoral tangent on purpose. But hear me, I want to kind of return from the digression. Digression. I might even say that if we are all alone, we will die. I don't believe that that's an exaggeration or hyperbolic. I don't mean we'll die tomorrow. I just mean we'll die. What do we see today except aloneness for churches, church leaders, and pastors, and what happens? What happens? The devil destroys and men fail. The devil destroys and men fail. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for churches to be alone. And if you'll bear with me, you might just even find yourself cracking a door that maybe there's something to what I'm saying because there might be some ways in which churches need to submit themselves to the rule of others. Wouldn't it have been nice? Wouldn't it have been nice if there was at least something in place beyond James McDonald's elders to discipline him and them and give them the needed level of accountability? Wouldn't that have been nice if there was something Do you see, on our own, we all die. And I'm not here to throw James McDonald under the bus. Every man in this room has a heart like James McDonald. Let's not kid ourselves. That's why I got so irritated with the Great Commission Collective like no other pastor in the entire group of churches had a heart like James McDonald. What a joke. I don't want to do with any such thing. Every man has a heart like James McDonald and is subject to every one of his temptations. Every man. Every man is out to build his own kingdom and to build his tower of Babel to the heavens. Every single last man. So let's not kid ourselves. And every church is out to build its own kingdom. You understand, I mean, apart from Christ and the grace of God, but let's not belittle the actual truth of the nature of our hearts by throwing the word grace on top of it first. 
Men need accountability and discipline. You need accountability and discipline. Churches need accountability and discipline. I need accountability and discipline. You should want me to have accountability and discipline concerning doctrine, character, and faithfulness to God's calling. You should be concerned that if I don't have accountability and discipline, this isn't the safest place either for me or for the church. Now, today's pastors can be so good at looking like they have it. Today's pastors trick the sheep all the time. They can be so good at looking like they have it, and they don't have it at all. They have anything but it. You know? It's like... The word I want to say to describe it is not what Baptists will approve of. But it's a bunch of crap. That's what it is. It's a bunch of crap. Pastors acting like they have accountability to pacify the sheep while they go to the casino. You know? I mean, it's just a joke. And so, oftentimes, the fellowships of churches, what happens is, is just when there's groups of churches together in a network or a fellowship, generally, there's something that gives peace to the congregation about it. They assume there will be some kind of accountability and discipline for the pastor, but there's absolutely nothing at all. Do you know what most of these fellowships and networks do? They feed on pastoral entitlement. That's what they do. You know, it's like the only thing pastors need. It's, a, it's just horrendous. The only thing pastors need is to go on a retreat to Arizona in February to get out of the cold and just get some relief and some encouragement. Now, if I was you, if I was you, I would just be insulted by that. I would just be insulted. You should be insulted by that mentality. As if the only thing pastors need is to get away from the sheep. That's what pastors need. So just come away from the sheep. We'll buy you nice meals. We'll put you up in nice places. We'll give you rest and respite. And that's the only thing that you need. And all the while, the congregations think there's supposed to be some accountability and discipline to this whole thing. And any good pastor thinks, wow, there should be some real accountability and discipline to this whole thing. And all they do is coddle me. It's just a joke. All right. And so then what they say within the local context, beyond just the organizational and network context, they say, I'm, I'm accountable to the elders, and they'll say I'm accountable to the church. And this is true in some ways. But let me just submit something to you. Are you interested in, you know, it's like, do you want to think about reality, or do you just want to hold up some idea that you think is happening? Let's deal with reality. Don't you want to deal with reality and think about what's true? Okay? How can the elders keep a pastor accountable in every needful way when the pastor is also leading them? How can a congregation keep their pastors accountable when the pastor is also leading them? How? Well, history bears out that this doesn't go well for anyone. It doesn't go well for anyone. It just bears it out. Let me keep going. I want to submit to you that pastors need other pastors for accountability and discipline. You know, there are things our elders can tell me. They can say, you're preaching too long. You know, they can say, you're not being encouraging enough to the flock. They can say... You know, any number of things like that. But the fullness of accountability they can't offer. They can't. And the fullness of accountability the church can't. You have the humility to realize that, right? I mean, just think about this. Are you ready to sit in a room and counsel a marriage that's falling apart and rebuild the whole thing? 
So why would we think that the congregation or the elders, if they're not ready to do the fullness of that work sometimes, why would we think that either the congregation or the elders can then handle their pastoral accountability and doctrine and judgment of faithfulness and, and character well? You know, let's approach this with humility, all of us. That's all I'm asking for. All I'm asking for is we approach this with humility about ourselves. That really is actually the whole of this, that we approach this with humility about ourselves. That's the heart of all of this. I want to submit to you that pastors need other pastors to help them. That's what I want to submit to you. So now you ask, well, what do you do then? (laughs) And I think that's the right question to ask. I I have no problem with anybody asking that question. Because we have no formal structure of that. What I have sought to do is to build relationships with many other men who will tell me no. That's what I've sought to do. You know, I sat in a meeting for two hours with other pastors telling me why my judgment was wrong about something, you know, the other day, a couple weeks ago. And they were right. My judgment was wrong about something, and they corrected me for two hours about it. So in the absence of having any kind of structure for that effort of accountability and discipline for the pastor, that's what I've sought to do. It's not good for churches to be alone. I needed that accountability and discipline, and you did too. You just didn't have to sit in the pain of the meeting. (laughs) Thankfully for you. A lone wildebeest is easy prey. A lone Christian is easy prey for the devil who seeks to devour like our prowls about like a roaring lion. An alone church is easy prey. Let's not super spiritualize it just because we think we're going to be the ones super connected to the, to the head on our own. So, I need to back up now for a second and address the issue of the day. Why is this coming up now? Why today? Why now? Well, it actually is because of the two natures of the way the term church is used in Scripture that I haven't covered yet, and I think this will make it obvious. This is the fourth way the term church is used, um, and uh, where an understanding of it is in Scripture. Acts chapter 21, verse 20, and I'm just going to make a comment here. Acts chapter 21, verse 20, and when they heard it, this is the the church in Jerusalem, okay? This is the church in Jerusalem. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands. So the church in Jerusalem is how big? Thousands. Likely tens of thousands in the church of Jerusalem. So what is this? The beginning of megachurch? You know? This is, the, this is the beginning of megachurch. 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people all gather together, you know, spread out through the week, and so the only thing that exists is one big megachurch? Probably not. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. And so what I want to submit to you is the fourth way the nature of the church is used is this. It's a geographical group of churches under a common government of some kind and in some way. A geographical group of churches under a common government. Tens of thousands of people. It's a pretty reasonable inference to think that what you had in Jerusalem by this point is a whole lot of congregations. But there was some level of common government. Now, um, there becomes really difficult issues in the book of Acts. Is there something prescriptive about this? Is it just describing the nature of what it had to be at the time? Um, But the real question is, well, what can we really draw from it? What wisdom is here? 
And if we combined it with many other passages of Scripture, what wisdom would it give us? That's really the question. And so I think it is certainly a reasonable inference that the church in Jerusalem was likely multiple congregations or many, many congregations with some level of common government of some kind and in some way. Scripture doesn't actually give much detail about it. But if it wasn't that, it was merely a megachurch. That's the other option. And this is what megachurch pastors say, you realize. It's what they say. All the time, when they use the book of Acts, this is what they say. The megachurch started in Jerusalem. I mean, that is what they say. And what they say to everybody else who's not a megachurch is, you're all awful because we are the tens of thousands like the church in Jerusalem. When our dear Bob was still here, we used to talk about the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church. And one of the reasons why we talked about it is because he would just say, yeah, I just don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's biblical. I wish I could still be having those conversations, you know. I still wish I had all the notes of his work on the book of Acts, especially his work on church planting and thinking about the life of the church. He never stopped ever thinking about the church, ever. And it was so careful in Scripture, and it was written so in so much detail and thoughtful consideration in the book of Acts about the church and church planting specifically. He would, he would start, in the articles I would read, he would always start with... Uh, we start with the Word of God. And he had concluded that the doctrine of autonomy of the local church wasn't a biblical doctrine. And he lived that in France. He lived that in France. Um, when he was church planting in France and they had planted other churches, they started the FIEC. Now, what does the I always stand for? When you have F-I-E-C, what does it always stand for? The Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. That's what the I always stands for. But not with Bob's Fellowship of Churches. It was the Fellowship of Interdependent Evangelical Churches. It was the Fellowship of Interdependent Evangelical Churches. Why was it interdependent? By the way, I wish I had those organizing documents too, but they're all in French. (laughs) When difficulty arose, when conflict in the churches arose, when there were unqualified pastors or elders, or very difficult, difficult situations that arose in the church, The pastors and elders would work together to help make and oversee decisions for the good of the churches. And that's how Bob lived his life in France, believing this actually helps churches, it helps pastors, it helps elders, and it helps congregations. I want to make an argument from wisdom that builds a bit on what I just said in regards to Bob. And then I want to build one other argument from Scripture quickly, okay, to conclude and crack the door open on why I deny the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church. Of course, I already mentioned the James McDonald fiasco. Here's a question. What happens when the elders go bad? What help is there for the church 
James McDonald was famous for saying, absolutely, there's nothing, there's no help for the church if elders go bad. Nothing. If the elders go bad, the whole church goes to hell in a handbasket, and that's the only option. That's it. That's being a slave to the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church and treating sheep like crap. That's what that is. Let's consider another example. What happens when there is a very difficult case of sexual abuse in the church and it involves one of the pastor's or elder's children? I mean, God have mercy on us, right? But just think with me for a second. You can't act like this stuff isn't real and doesn't come up. It happens all the time. So in the case where the church is a slave to an unbiblical doctrine of its own autonomy, the pastors or elders or deacons or however the church is governed must by themselves do all the work must by themselves do everything necessary to investigate the situation. Must by themselves, in the fog of war, do all of this work with people they love while their own hearts are crushed too. In the worst kind of pressure, in the most difficult kind of situation, crushed by their own grief and the church's grief and fear for everyone in the church and how they're going to handle all of this, must see clearly and make all perfect judgments. While at the same time, the whole congregation, and rightly so, I'm fighting for you here, This is all about fighting for you. Do you know, can you tell? Like, this is about fighting for you. Rightly so, you should be going, can I trust my pastors and elders given the nature of this situation with their kid? That's the question you'll be asking. And you should ask that question. I mean, that's the question every single person is going to ask. Let's not talk, let's not, let's not like deny reality, right? You should be asking that question. And in the slavery of the autonomy of the local church, that is what the congregation is left with. With no help. And lots of questions about who they can trust. Let me bring it closer to home for our church. What if the pastors and elders are in a conflict that they can't bring resolution to themselves? Do they call a congregational meeting to let the whole congregation be the judge? That just would be the worst thing imaginable. I mean, let's just sign up for WWE, WrestleMania, Royal Rumble. Right? When Carl and I were leading through elder conflict, wasn't the real question, can I really trust Carl and Josh's judgment? Isn't that the real question? That's the real question. The question for the whole congregation. And it's of no fault. I'm not faulting you for asking the question. What I'm just acknowledging is, is that's the question. And it's the right question. There's no fault in asking that question. But that's where the whole congregation is left. I would like to find some ways to maybe that not have to be the case for you. I would have loved the opportunity to call in other men who we trust to investigate the situation, 
to consider the details of the situation, to evaluate the situation, and to make a judgment about the situation, and to give you their judgment about the situation. So that you didn't, weren't left in the helpless position of having to decide who to trust. This is not a thing that the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church allows for, because if you help the congregation, they're submitting to not Jesus as their head. Stupid. Unwise. Not love to the sheep. That's entirely what this is about. Humility. Love to the sheep. And to everyone, really. I mean, is it any wonder then why so many of these situations get so handled so poorly in the church today? If the church has no help and she's alone, what happens to her? She dies. Satan devours, men fail. This is telling you the fruit of this doctrine in the American church is not good. Not good. Now, I'm not articulating a clear new form of governance yet because it isn't all clear enough to me or Joel or Esteban or Carl or Chris or to all of you. But what if we could at least see some value in this? In the wisdom of God, could see some wisdom to this. What if we could at least some see some value in going, we don't trust ourselves with this one. We need help. And I could give you and go on forever about devastating story after devastating story after devastating story of this being handled poorly. All of these kinds of things. What if we actually could have humility? You know? (laughs) Yeah. What if we could actually have humility? (laughs) We don't trust ourselves with this one. The man you should fear the most is the man who trusts in himself. We don't trust ourselves with this. We we may have failed so severely and not know it. We need other pastors and elders to help to stay in and investigate this. Decide where responsibility lies. On all sides of the equation, make difficult decisions about who is guilty for what. And our own pastors and elders need to submit to their judgment and so does the congregation. And you know what the fruit of that would be? Handled properly, peace in the church, proper authority and responsibility in the right places for the good of everyone. That would be the fruit in the church. Doesn't it sound like a far better way to bring about a right resolution and a peaceful resolution to a church in pain? that the congregation would be much more willing to trust rather than just have to listen to their pastors and elders who have more power over them. So the goal of all of this is the right responsibilities and right authorities in the right places for the good of the congregation, the good of the pastors and elders, and the good of the churches of Jesus Christ. All I am saying at this point is we should think about ourselves humbly and that we need help. Now, turn to Acts 15. I will cover this quickly, and I think it will be sufficient for now. It's hard to find humble pastors today, which is why they don't see things like this in Scripture as they grow. 
And so this is an argument. That was an argument from wisdom. Think through reality. What do people need? That's an argument from wisdom. This is an argument from the pattern of the apostles, from Scripture. Acts 15. Just think about this. Acts 15, verse 1 to 2. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So there's a major issue arising in the church. The apostles and the elders in Jerusalem are coming together. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter from different churches over a space of geography. Verse 19, James, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church and the leader of the Jerusalem elders, says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, so in other words, then between verses 6 and 19, there's the recounting of the gospel coming to the Gentiles, the work of God among them, they're looking at this and evaluating it, can you be saved, you're not circumcised, James gives his judgment, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who are not circumcised, right? who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain. So here's some things that are going to be our judgment that we're going to command back to the churches. To abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the Gentiles have a responsibility to carry out in the churches, but they must not be circumcised to be saved. Okay? So what's the fruit of this working together of the apostles and the elders? Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem with the whole church. In other words... Here's a solution that seems good to everybody through the mutual work together. It seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to do what? To choose men from among them and send them to Antioch, back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So they come together from multiple churches, Antioch, Jerusalem, the apostles, elders. There's a solution administered that seems favorable to everyone. And there's a letter that goes out now to tell the church in Antioch, this is the judgment on the matter. Okay. It actually was a working together that had authority to bring this conflict to an end. But not only to bring the conflict to an end, what's the response? In verse 31. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. All I want to say about that is if the apostles and those closely connected with the apostles, the elders in the church of Jerusalem, if they had issues arise in the church and in churches where they actually had to come together and actually had to wrestle through truth and facts and details, and they actually had to make a judgment that was pleasing to them all, and send that judgment back to the church at Antioch, which would have been a binding judgment, you understand. 
It's a binding judgment. I mean, it had authority. Let's not pretend like it didn't have authority so we can just maintain our doctrine of the autonomy of the local church. It had authority. Abstain from idols. It had authority. If the apostles had to do this, how in the world could I think and our elders think that we never need help? How in the world could pastors all across the country under the notion of the autonomy of the local church think that they never really need help? How? Well, we don't have conflicts like the apostles had in the church today. You all know that's bonkers. You've lived it. You'll live it again. Well, we don't have the kinds of sins that existed in 1 Corinthians, in Corinth today. We have 2,000 years where we've all grown past all those things. Like, really? <laughs> I don't know what delusion you live in. How in the world could we walk humbly and not just have all the trust in ourselves and not think that sometimes the churches need help? And you know what? Maybe there's another church, because this isn't all about us, maybe there's another church that actually needs our help. Maybe there's other pastors and elders that we can help. And what if it was a good thing and not a sacred cow and the devil? It's crazy that we just like have concluded so strongly that everything else is of the devil. What if it actually helped the sheep? What if it actually helped pastors who were fallen in some sense but not disqualified who needed measured just judgment, accountability, and discipline that they could keep doing and administering their work from other pastors and elders so that the congregation could be free to trust them in their judgments of just judgment and just weight and measure. Just... Well, the last thing is that That's an argument from the pattern of the apostles. That there's some level of common government in geographical areas in the way the church is used. The fifth way the word church is used in Scripture, and this is the least clear to me. I'm not even sure how to wrap my head around it, so that's all you get. I'm just going to say it because there's a historical precedent for this. But that's what it is to me at this point. There's a historical precedent for this. It's not as clear to me yet. The word church, as the speaking specifically of the office bearers of the church, the elders, pastors, as representatives of the whole church. It's the least clear to me. I have nothing to say about it now. I have no way, I have no ability to prove that right now. (laughs) I don't know if I ever will. I may have something to say about it down the road. The conclusion is, I hope to have just cracked the door open towards the love of the churches. Towards being humble in evaluating Scripture and humble in using God's wisdom and actually loving people how they need it when they need it. To have the right authorities and the right responsibilities in the right places. If I've cracked the door at all, then this has been good. So, stand with me for prayer, would you?
Oh, Jesus, help us help your church. Your church needs so much help. And we need so much help. And I just pray that you would help us to grow in loving the church and walking humbly in the church that is yours and belongs to you and that we would love the church that you gave yourself for. And I don't know what else to pray about, Jesus. Bear fruit through your word. Amen.